2: Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovering. It's brought to you by two guys who are grateful for the ability to do this yes, job. Yes, we are. Right? Definitely. How are you doing, man?
3: I'm doing well. I'm Casey,
2: I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr.
3: Matt yeah, Woolley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just for people who there.
2: are joining us now. Right. I mean, after three years, you know, there's probably people going, like, well, maybe we'll give them a shot now. We're kind of going th- on three and a half at this point. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And, and we've uh, got
3: your re- sobriety date coming up in September 3rd, 2018.
2: Memorial right. Day. It'll be four years. You know, and actually, I was talking to my kids about that because we often talk about my sobriety date.
3: Do you talk about how long your hair's getting? It's getting long. Do you long. ever talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I got a text this morning from my you're, you're girlfriend. You're a little
2: bit like, what's uh, what? Twisted sister? What's his name? D. Snyder? D. Snyder. Remember? You're not going to All that take long, blonde, it. curly hair? No, so I got a text from my girlfriend this morning. She's like, hey, uh, Tate was that's her son. Tate was supposed to get his haircut this Saturday, but he's not going to be able to make it. Do you want his appointment? Yeah. <laughs> and Intent. Was, yeah, and I was like, yeah, I probably go check it Ooh, out. Let the flow grow. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. For as a guy, that's the only real stuff I get to play with, you know what I mean? Is right. an accessory.
3: Yeah, if you're accessorizing beyond that, then yeah. that's a little weird. although
2: I did just get some new TV glasses, and I can't wait to show you them. Okay, They're, they're nice. pretty awesome. But I was talking with my kids about my sobriety date, and I say it's September 3rd, 2018. Right. Truth be told, it's probably September 4th, because September 3rd, I was pretty wasted.
3: That's true. That you know was the last I mean? day you use. So the, the last fourth day. is like the, the first fourth is. sober day. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that was a four, you know, and I don't even know if that counts because I was in detox and they were pumping me full of Adivant and no, it counts. all kinds of stuff, it you counts. know what I mean? But I wasn't drinking beer. And I've said this on the podcast before. Uh, once I was in rehab, they were like, well, what did you drink before you went in? I was like, what do you mean? They go, yeah, you're supposed to drink or, or do before you go in. I was like, I didn't know that's a thing.
3: Oh, you mean like get drunk before you go into rehab, like, yeah, the like one when, last hurrah? Kind yeah, of like thing? When,
2: when you walk. That's in, a bad attitude. It, it's a bad attitude. when you walk into some detox facilities, you will see empty beer cans and bottles out there by the cars, and you know what I mean. People taking that last drink—that uh, you know—that's no,
3: desperation, huh?
2: Yeah, or, or, yeah, like, that's not how I wanted oh, to say, say yeah. goodbye to alcohol. Right. You, you know what I mean? I, I think I did a pretty...
3: Yeah, you got a bang-up job.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah. yeah. And so September 4th is really the sobriety yeah, day yeah. for me. Right. Um But um, September 3rd is the day that changed my life forever in a good way, as like we talked about last week on the podcast. Right, yeah. Every once in a while, I'm scrolling around on the internet and Instagram and TikTok and Facebook. When I say all the... Okay, all the time I'm on there.
3: You're on there a lot, yeah.
2: But I, I found this this meme, and I actually took a photo shot of it, so I would remember to bring it up during the podcast. Thank goodness, yes. Because a photo f- shot. A f- photo shot? Yeah. You mean a screenshot? Yep. That's what I mean. <laughs> okay. That's what I mean. All right, Dad. And uh, this is from an Instagram account called The Sober School. Uh, and there's a lot of sobriety. Oh, I think
3: I follow them, too.
2: And they, but so I saw this and, yeah. they, and it really applied to me. And I was like, I want to talk to Dr. Matt about this. And here's it goes. I used to give alcohol so many different jobs. It had to make me happy, make me less anxious, help me calm down, help me have fun, help me party and just make everything better. And somehow it never really worked. But I also used to give alcohol those jobs. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Actually. You know, and yeah. and and I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and alcohol was my only coping mechanism. It was the only tool that I had in my bag in case of emergency break and go for that. I mean, there was. I mean, to be forty five, and that usually that was my only coping mechanism for life. Yeah. For the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it it seemed to be hand in hand. And I used to say beer was riding shotgun in my life. But truth be told, I was riding shotgun and beer was running my life.
3: Right. It's sort of like what you were saying last time. It's that term that you dislike, the functional alcoholic. alcoholic. Yeah, I I just think I,
2: I know people are doing it. And I'm not saying that you can't have a life like that. But to me, it seems like a
3: sad life. I think it is for sure. In fact, it's interesting uh, that we're talking about this again. So we have, I don't know if uh, if we would call certain listeners of our shows like super listeners or mega listeners, mm-hmm. the, the ones that never miss an episode. Right. We have quite a few of those. Um, one of the ones that never misses an episode and always listens when she runs in the morning. Her name's Heather. I think I've mentioned some of her comments before. And she wanted me to pass along to you mm-hmm. that she also hates that term functional alcoholic like you were saying last time for the same reasons you're saying it's sad it's not it's not really functional it's like the way you just described that is if your only coping mechanism is in a bottle uh, or in a pipe or one of those sorts of things are you really functional like the, the alcohol can't do all those jobs that the meme just pointed out you need to be learning how to do all those jobs and We need to have healthy – I don't even really like the idea of coping mechanisms. I I know that Band-Aids are important in life. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I do get a little uh, irritable about is – People will meet me and they'll say, Oh, so what do you do? You teach people coping mechanisms, coping skills. And I always feel like, Well, maybe as much as nurses hand out band aids, like, like I do a lot more than that, I hope. I hope real therapy, real recovery means that we're making real changes. So being a functional alcoholic implies you're not, you're an alcoholic and you're barely functioning, like, and, and you're not changing, you're not improving. And then coping skills sort of implies that we're just trying to get by as well. So we're in order to make, real change and that's i think the distinction between sobriety and recovery sobriety might be a coping skill like i'm staying sober and hat, hats off to people that can stay sober but there's more right like you there's so much more than just being sober there is living a life in recovery. What well, do you think
2: about it? A nurse puts a bandaid on it. Why does it put the bandaid on it? Because one to stop the bleeding, and then they're going to do an internal check, and then they're going to do a whole body check and try to figure out how that happened. Right. So yeah, we've got to stop the bleeding, and if if that's what we're doing at first, so I it's get a that first
3: line treatment. Right? Yeah, but then we want to go. What else is there?
2: Yeah, like I I and I say this all the time, and I hope people don't ever get tired of it. I remember sitting down in my therapist's office, and he goes, "Do you want me to blow your mind?" And I was like, "Yeah, man, I'm in rehab. Blow my mind." He goes. <laughs> Drinking's not your problem. And I'm like, what? Pretty sure drinking's my problem, but that's why I'm in rehab. And he yeah. goes, no, your problems are your problems. And drinking has been your solution. Right. He goes, now drinking has become a problem because your body's addicted to it, but your problems are your problems. And we've got to figure out what those are and how to help those, or you're going to fall back into your same routine. And you weren't treating your
3: problems because you were putting it all on alcohol to do it. Yeah. And so the alcohol becomes its own problem. Yeah. became well, abandoned. No, I, I think that's but, but, then it, very insightful. And eventually it couldn't hold it back. And yeah. it was horrible. And it became its own issue.
2: So I, once again, I really love this. And you know what I love and that I've noticed even more and more after each year we've done this podcast is when I'm out and about. And people come up and talk about recovery, talk about the things they're doing. Three years ago, people weren't as willing to talk about recovery as they are today. And maybe it's because my circle's gotten bigger, but I feel like a lot
3: of people are celebrating recovery and living out loud. I would say culturally here in the state of Utah and around the nation, it's really weird. Just in the last five years, there has been this positive explosion of conversation Uh, people, places, uh, everything on the internet that's embracing and supporting recovery. So the conversation is much more natural and easy now. And I really do think if you look back on just the number of recovery centers, the number of types of programs, the number of um, media outlets like this podcast and television shows, in the last five years it's just been exponential growth. And I think that's because people are finally tired of hiding it And they, the people like we have on our show and you and others who are living this beautiful life in recovery, you you just want to share that. Like anytime you have something great, you want to share it. Now there's so many outlets. So I'm grateful to be part of it because you're right. Five years ago, 10 years ago. I mean, back when we were in college, nobody ever wanted to talk about it. I remember, and I don't know if I've
2: ever talked about this on the podcast, is I used to get drunk and watch the TV show Interventionist.
3: I know. so <laughs> awesome. And, and so, I mean, that, that just, I could like, chew I would,
2: on that all day. I would day. watch it, and, and in my head, I was like, so I'm preparing myself for in case this ever happens. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I was doing homework, you know what I mean? Just like, in case. Yeah, just in case. Like, but like, in my messed up mind, that's really kind of what I was doing. I was like, so they're going to say this. and." And I'm gonna say this and they're gonna come at me get see, all ready this, for the test yeah they're gonna come at me with this information and be like okay I've seen the movie I know what you guys are trying to do yeah you know don't put a mic on me and make me go to some weird hotel and stand in a lobby because I know what's coming and yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this because <laughs> I don't have a problem you know but I mean but even back then I used to watch it and it was more yeah. of like I watched it because it was a train wreck but the weird thing yeah. is is I love to watch the beginning. Because I like to see who these people really were. Because they give you a good... And it's kind of how we do the show. You know, what the early life was like and before right, their the addiction. background, yeah. And then I would fast-forward it during the middle. Because it was so messy and train-wrecky and made me feel so icky. And I just heard it so much for the family. a little
3: too real, maybe?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then I always fast forward it to the end I'll to see how to the they were doing. Ending, if it and worked then hard. I remember I'd wait. And it, and, and it always made me mad because they would check the people into rehab... And then they would roll the credits. And then at the end of the credits, their thing would pop up and say, John Smith's been sober for 13 days or you know, or, or relapsed after 90 days. Yeah, you know." And the follow-up. There, the follow-up was just horrible. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And so I always felt like they exploited that middle part, uh, the train wreck and the life dissolving and I all that. I think that
3: you're right. That's That was kind of the market that they, people wanted to tune in and see that. Um, yeah. And so I, that's
2: why I want this podcast to celebrate more about the recovery and right. less about the train wreck. Now, I think the train wreck is important because I like to let people know that as bad as your life has gotten, uh, you, you can, it can get better.
3: Well, I do think there's some value in that. Like it is it is good to see that, yeah, like like the contrast between the low lows. And we've had some people share – some pretty low lows on our show.
2: Stuff where we've looked at each other and was like, whoa.
3: Yeah. Stuff we, because I think listeners of the show understand we, a lot of what we talk about is fresh news to us, right? Well, like we want it to just be a new conversation. Yeah. So we don't know the the background. Uh, so that contrast can be helpful if a person's in a state of mind where they're like, I can't do it. My, my story's too bad. And they hear someone else's story and they're like, maybe I can do it.
2: Well, I remember being in recovery and sitting in the process group with 15 other people and somebody holding on to this secret and, you know, this thing that they've been carrying around for years that they feel like just makes them a horrible person. Mm -hmm. And finally watching them get it off their chest and process this in a group and then have them realize, oh, yeah. Wasn't as bad as I thought it was. That, that, and it doesn't, maybe I'm not a horrible person. Right. Maybe other people have done similar things, but when you're an addict deep in your addiction, you isolate yourself and you close off the rest of the world and you think, just these horrible thoughts about yourself and and you start to believe Which them. Which
3: contributes to use, right? Yeah, because it does. Because you feel bad and so you use more.
2: Yeah. I mean, how many times do we have people on this podcast who have said, uh, well, this is just going to be me, so I'm going to be the best drug addict I can be.
3: Oh, tons. And you know
2: what? Yeah. And I'm going to just do it better than anyone has ever done it.
3: Uh, I had a new patient recently, a very bright person, graduated from a very prestigious university not too long ago. And he basically said the same thing. He said, when I was off to college and had a hard time making friends and a hard time meeting girls, I figured if I could party harder than anyone else, then everyone would like me. And that, that was his downfall. That was that was that addict mentality of mm-hmm. like, if I can just be the best at this, then everything else will fall into place. Of course, everything else fell apart, right?
2: And that's usually how it goes. And that's what makes addicts so wonderful uh, in the world of business, as well as the world of addiction, it's that all-in uh, mentality.
3: We've had to, so many entrepreneurial uh, people in recovery because, and they're very successful because, yeah, that personality trait. Personality traits are kind of funny because they can be used for your benefit or your detriment, right? Yeah. And when when the addiction's involved and you're an all-or-nothing person, watch out. But if you're living a life of recovery and you're an all or nothing person, watch out because good stuff's going to happen.
2: Remember the guest we had on who streamlined the
3: gang business? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was like the gang menta- uh, accountant, right? She came yeah. in and she's like, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, was like, well, she, she started working for up. multiple gangs. Yeah. She was, I don't know how you get away with that. I guess she didn't. But well, yeah, I mean, that kind of entrepreneurial, you know, thinking. Yeah. yeah just applied maybe in the wrong way.
2: Well, our guest today's name is Ryan Brown, and uh, I was going to say Brene Brown, but you credit <laughs> her to some of your uh,
1: recovery. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a, she's my hero.
2: You love her? I love her. And we're going to find out more about Ryan Brown's story in just a second. You're listening to Project Recovery.
3: I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold.
2: Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Ryan Brown. Now, I met Ryan Brown, what, right out of rehab?
1: Yeah, like a year ago. You year, were out year, of rehab? Or I was out of rehab. No, I was. And I just barely got out of rehab. Yeah, it was, I mean, it, my sobriety date is March 8th, so it was a year and... A couple months, ago. he came up with me to the Maverick, and he thought I was still on TV.
2: Didn't know that I was fresh out of recovery. We started talking. Yeah. Uh, he told me he was. I said, "I'd like to get you on the show." He said, "No, no, I don't want to <laughs> do that. I don't want to be on your show." Right. And I was like, "Well, when you're ready, I'd love to have you on." Uh, so I reached out to
1: him and I said, "Are you ready?" And you said, "I said, of course." All right. So yeah. where does the story of Ryan Brown begin? Um, Ryan Brown began in Farmington, Utah. Um, we I grew up. LDS, and a good family, um, nothing wrong with my childhood. I remember when I first went to counseling and this therapist was headstrong on, no, we got to find that childhood trauma. trauma, right? And I was like, but there's none. There's literally none. Yeah. Like my dad got mad at me once really loudly, you know, or <laughs> like my mom got but you know what that, at me. That, th- but
2: I think that <laughs> needs some attention because there's a lot of people who have fallen into addiction not because of trauma, but right. uh, because of other reasons. And yeah. sometimes everybody wants to blame it on trauma. What happened to you as a yeah. kid? Yeah. What you know? Was your dad not there? Was your mom not some, there?
3: Some therapists unfortunately have a real bias towards that because of their training. Mm-hmm. And I'll remind the listeners that not all thera- being a therapist is not a degree. Um, you know, lots of different people with different training backgrounds can become therapists, and so. Um, a lot of therapists have that bent that you must have some trauma in your background mm-hmm. uh, and uh, many people do no I and not however I, yeah uh, there's a lot of things that happen post childhood that can cause anxiety depression or cause a person to fall into substance abuse so it sounds like you had
1: sort of an idyllic yeah childhood really good, you have a big family uh, one brother one sister I was the oldest um, a lot of people talk about being the oldest and having to be the perfectionist like you 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 are counted on to be you know the example mm-hmm. right and, and what, for the most part I was what what decade did you grow up in because um, I graduated in 97
3: 97 from so, Bumont, so. so you, you were a kid through the 80s and 90s yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I bring that up because for anybody who's not familiar with the geography of Utah Farmington as it sounds was Pretty small town back then, yeah. you know, north of Salt Lake. It's it's much more commercial now than it used to be, mm-hmm. but it kind of makes sense that you were you were not only growing up with a nice, you know, stable, supportive family, but probably in a nice, stable, supportive community for sure. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, and that's uh,
3: the well, truth. Not that there weren't problems back in those days, but Farmington was kind of a small town. Yeah,
1: and and I think you've had a couple of guests on here from the Farmington. Oh, yeah. We've had a couple from Farmington, from Ogden, (laughs) from Salt Lake, from Provo, from Morgan. I mean, that's the
2: thing is addiction doesn't discriminate. And a lot of people think that because – Big
3: city, small town, doesn't matter. It doesn't.
2: And so you said you grew up pretty good, but as the oldest child, you had this kind of perfectionist uh, attitude. Yeah,
1: I always did. I always always had that. I I have to be the best. And my love was basketball. So I wanted to do everything I could to be on the basketball team. And, And in junior high, I didn't make the basketball team. And it was devastating, you know, because I'd put all I, I don't know how I compare myself, but like I, I thought I was going to make the basketball team, and I didn't. And I it, think
3: Michael Jordan got cut one year too. <laughs> so don't feel bad. Don't feel bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, so it was, it was one of those things where you know, I, I, I had setbacks in life. I always got really good grades. Like I was three point nine three all through high school, and you know, it, that was like Casey. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I heard.
2: No, you didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs>
1: But good grades, you get. You get. You know, you what make was the that t- like
3: missing? The, sorry, Casey. What was that like not making the basketball team? Though uh, it it wasn't a trauma. But what was that like for a kid?
1: Oh, it's, it's well, it's it's when that's your whole focus, right? That you don't have work to 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 do. You, you're out there shooting hoops like twenty four seven. Yeah, right? just shooting, yeah. shooting, shooting. That was shooting. your purpose. Yeah, that's the only thing that I. I mean, grades were always there. But, like, the thing that I wanted to prove myself with was basketball because girls go to basketball games. Like, you're a popular kid, you know. Hey, it's good to be on the basketball team. Yeah, It's I'm... been
2: a recipe for success for men for a lot of <laughs> yes. years.
1: I believe so. Yeah. So, I, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And so when I didn't make it in junior high, I was like, man, I got to work harder. I, I do remember thinking that. I'd... But see, that's
2: a unique Outtake on that because that's a resilient attitude. Because a lot of people be like, "Well,
1: I'm not doing this then," and then they're <laughs> going to go find something else. Quit and give up? Yeah, but you said you got to work harder. Yeah, that and that's kind of my mo throughout addiction too. Like, oh, I got to just do it better, do it harder. Again, you can see how certain traits can work for you or against you, yep. <laughs> right? Yeah. So
3: you worked harder.
1: Yeah, and did you make the team? Made the team in high school. Yeah, so that's impressive, actually. You know, uh, and, and and it wasn't like. You know, I, I remember I was in the the, the band at the time because I played drums and I didn't want to excel at drums. I I just was like something else to do, you know, some other hobby. And when I made the basketball team, it was over the PA and at Viewmont and I just jumped up screaming and like, yeah, I finally did so it. Exciting. I'm here, yeah, you know, yeah. and then, you know, I, I rode the bench a lot and I was on the sophomore team, barely played. And but I, just to be on the team. Yeah. Right? Just there. to be on the team. Well, that bounce back,
3: anybody who's familiar with high school athletics, especially nowadays, if you're not in that crowd that makes the team in the junior high years, it's pretty unlikely you're going to be in the crowd oh, that yeah. makes the team uh, your, in your high school years. And basketball, to your credit, is one of the harder ones to make the high school team on because they have so few players. Yeah. It's not like a football team where yeah. you've got like, you know, 40 people on the team, mm-hmm. right? And so
1: that's, I think basketball is one of the hardest. Uh, sports to to make the team. Yeah, I wasn't very good at math. Apparently, when you, do, <laughs> when you do the math on it, you're like, oh, that's a lot of people trying out. That's a lot, you yeah, know, for a few spots. Yeah, for a couple spots.
2: So you made the high school basketball team at any point in your high school career? Did you
1: try alcohol? Did you try drugs? No, I like I had like one sip. Like I I actually had some friends that that had problems with addiction. Um, had problems with alcohol and drugs, but I was always the designated driver. I, that's, that was my role, you know? And again, you had
3: friends that partied, but yeah. You didn't party. And
1: I, and I, and I would go to, to parties and be like, Hey, let me get you home. You know, let me be that guy. Okay. And, and so, and I was comfortable with it. I was, I didn't particularly like the taste of alcohol the, the time I tried it. And it was just like, not for me, you know? And then it was through high school. Um, I had, I did have a friend, um, kill himself um, after a, a relapse after rehab. So in um, high school, while he was yeah, still in high school, wow. yeah. Um, and so that really affected me. That that actually um, was something that was was hard for me to understand because it, we we had talked about going on a mission together. We had, we'd worked out um, together. Uh, we were pushing weights every day, trying to be bigger, faster, stronger. And I went to a volleyball. Uh, competition in Colorado, and I got a call from his parents, and oh, wow. it was it was rough. What was his drug of choice? What was he using? I, it was a lot. It was it was anything that he could get his hands on too. But we um, call that
3: poly substance. Yeah, I mean abuse. marijuana
1: was a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, alcoholic, um, uh, just anything that you could get high off of. Basically, that changes
3: that changes you as a young person, doesn't it? Yeah, I and mean, you could see it in yeah.
1: him, you know. And then when when he went to rehab and then came home and. Um, and then had a, you know, a relapse, like that's, that's the last thing that then it's like, I'm, I'm a failure, you know, Mm -hmm. and I could see that in him.
3: How do you think it changed you having a friend commit suicide?
1: I didn't want anything to do with it. Like I remember going to the funeral and in my head thinking all those guys that are here celebrating Tori's you know, being here for Tori, celebrating his life, they need to get their act together. I remember thinking that like, because po- like they used. shaming them in my head. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so you blamed
3: the substances for for his his death.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And a, and a little bit of the enablers. Yeah. You know? the enablers. And again, didn't know much about addiction or anything at that point. So So I
2: mean that is a traumatic event. You know, yeah, for sure. But it seems like it was a warning sign from you to
1: stay away, which it seemed like you it inevitably worked. did. It worked for a long time. Like I, I used his his passing as like don't touch the stuff, do not touch it. So you end up graduating high school, mm-hmm. uh, move on to went I, I went to USU first semester. Again, I was I was the designated driver. I was even in the Sigma Chi. Russian Sigma Chi, and and I was the dude that people could call up at three in the morning saying, "Hey, I'm at the White Owl. Come and get me." You yeah. know, I'm a Sigma Chi. From Utah State, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah probably I Probably mean, he helped you a couple of times. I don't probably, know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> probably, and uh, you know, but the, it's a small world. So you're up there, and you're
1: designated driving for everybody. Yeah, there. I mean, you know, case like uh, the White Owl was the the spot, hot spot. The you only get spot, a, big dog really. at a Burger. Yeah,
2: you know. Yeah,
1: and so I and then I was willing to do that because I I had a friend that passed. You know, I I was like, I I can be that person. I can help somebody that might you know, need help.
3: So that stayed with you and started to form. sounds like a little bit of your identity. Like I'm I'm a guy who doesn't do that. And in fact, I'm a guy who's going to help the guys who do it. Yeah.
1: But it
2: didn't seem like you were judging anybody for their choices.
1: No, I I mean a little bit in my head, you know, a little bit like, like, Oh, they, they could be doing better. They could be doing better with their lives. Like that's a talented person. You shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, they should use that energy towards good well on the surface that, that there's some truth in that right like it's oh. honest was the, right.
2: i was expecting that honest answer you yeah, know what a, that's very I honest I be like yeah no i don't judge him he's like no i was a little in my head <laughs> you know? but like,
3: whoa. I, I like that Ryan. i yeah. like the fact that you're honest because that is what we think and yeah. there is an element of truth in that like if you see a talented friend who's kind of getting drunk and using drugs all the time and diminishing their talent there's some element of truth in that but i think then like you and like me growing up and most people, if you don't have an education about uh, addiction and how it works and, and, and substance abuse and all of that, then that's kind of where our understanding of the person stops. Yeah, right? And, I think and part- so we stay kind of judgmental instead of if we really understand the whole thing. It's, it, it's more complex, but it helps us not be judgmental.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. And, then, and, I, and I always thought of it as a moral failure. Like, they're choosing to do this. Right, and that's right? how most of us – I don't know. No, I, I don't no. mind admitting
3: that's how I grew up like, thinking about it.
1: Yeah, and so for me, like – and including when I was in my addiction, like, pe- people would be like, just, you know, you've got kids, man. Like, figure it out. like, mm-hmm. it's, Just stop. Yeah, just stop. And and, and at that point in, in college before I went on a mission, it was just like, hey, man, like, you ever think about just not doing that? Oh. <laughs> I'm in college. I'm 21 years old, 19, 18, whatever. You know, this is what I want to do. This is this is this is the time to do it, bro. Yeah.
2: and 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 you know, a lot of lot of college students would say that this is the time to do it. You just don't know if you're gonna up getting bit with the addiction sure. bug. For sure. So you, you're up at USU. You decide to go on
1: a mission. Yeah, I went to Hong Kong on a mission. Served a two-year mission. Loved it. Um, I was a su- successful missionary. So I I loved every bit of it. You know, and um. I I came home and that um, sort of
3: fits your personality though, like service oriented, right? Like you wanted to be the designated driver. You like to s-
1: help yeah, others. I, this
3: time you're driving people yeah, to God.
1: Yeah, the <laughs> the that I think part of it is wanting to to be the best at whatever that is. Yeah, you know. And like you were saying earlier, yeah. whatever that. If I'm if I'm already in it, I'm all in. I'm all in. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I'm I'm thousands of miles away from home. I might as well make the best of it, and that's what I did. And you came back and a successful missionary, successful missionary, uh, broke up with my longtime girlfriend and, and after uh, the mission. Yeah. Well, she kind of broke up with me. It wasn't (laughs) really my choice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. I I get that. Uh, You know, again, an honest answer. We appreciate (laughs) it. Well, she
2: (laughs) actually broke up with me. I didn't have a choice. I
1: I mean, I thought that I was coming home to a girlfriend. Let's put it that way. But you came home and, uh, where'd you go to school? I went to the, directly to the U, mm-hmm. and and I was working uh, for a billing company, and then um, going to school full time. So I, I was I was preoccupying my day with as much in a day as possible. Um, met Sarah, and we we clicked really early, and we got married within six months. And you know we we just had we had four kids um within short times we wanted to be perfect parents as well like perfection is the underlying theme here like just right. checking the box and doing everything that we're supposed to and and then you know
2: everything you thought you were supposed to Exactly. I mean because that's the thing that sometimes gets us in trouble is I'm doing what I'm supposed to. Well, says yeah. who?
3: We call them shoulds. Yeah, shoulds, you know, yeah. We grow up a lot with the, these things that we're taught. Milestones. And and we think, well, we should do this. We should not do that. And uh, the world's not cutting. most things are not that way. And most people don't really own their own shoulds. Yeah. So we adopt shoulds from things that we're taught. And that can feel burdensome later on in life when you feel like I have to do all these things, but I don't know if I really want to do them. Yeah.
2: Right. And if I haven't done them by this time, am I a failure? And
1: yep. There's that. I should have done this by a certain date or a certain time. Yeah. That was. That I mean, coming off a of mission. Yeah. yeah well, you get that talking. So to people them. that, are, <laughs> <Yeah>. not, <laughs> that sure. are not familiar with the LDS
3: Mormon culture is that that's there's there's some shoulds there. You when you're 19 back in the day, now it's 18. You should go on a mission and and do that for a couple of years, and when you get home, you should find a, a person to marry, and then you should start having as many kids as you can have, mm-hmm. uh, at an, you know, right away. Yep. And so you were doing all that. Yep. Checking
1: the boxes, man. Four kids and how long? Uh, 2002. And then my youngest is 10. So, um, yeah, I mean, 11. Yeah. So yeah. we pretty succinct, right? Yeah. We're pretty. You were planned busy. Parenthood. You were busy. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah, had a plan, had a goal. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So then what, what happened was I, I started a, a company um, I started this business called ideal practice where I'd help, um, medical, uh, providers get in network with insurances and it was, and it was going really well. Um, and at first it wasn't no, no small business goes really well at the start, but it was going really well. And I was, I was doing well and if it's going a small business. Yeah, exactly. Going, it was going, going to right. the next step. Um, and then it, you know, we, we bought a house and moved in and, um, got our own house. I mean, that was a big deal. That was another should that's Absolutely, a should. Yeah. Right. And then, um, got a, a position in the church as as a young men's advisor. Mm-hmm. And we went, uh, snowboarding, night snowboarding. I was the fun one also. Oh, Casey. I can it's, see that. Yeah. It, like young men's like being in charge of the youth program. Yeah. The youth program yep. at, at 16, 17, 18, that was my jam, right? So let's, let's go skiing. Let's go, let's go, go skiing. cliff jumping. Yeah, yeah let's, let's do that stuff. Zion's, you know, all the fun stuff, right? So we went night skiing one night, and I was I was showing off, and I um, I used to be really good at snowboarding, and um, I I was on a rail that iced over at at Brighton, and my board came out from underneath me, and I broke my back. Ooh, just smashed my back, like like you landed you, you seen on the those rail. Like Star Wars. When they, they burst a star, that was like my bones on an x-ray. Uh, it was like fragments everywhere. Oh, my gosh. So, um, you know, I actually went because I didn't want to give up. <laughs> I actually finished that night scheme. Oh, oh, my, my gosh. God. I'm dead serious. <laughs> You're a warrior. Yeah. And then uh. the next day, could not walk, could not even get up out of bed. I was uh. in so much pain. And, again, being with doctors um, as clients and and, and I – most of my clients are my friends. Like I just talked to them like they're just my friend. And I remember going to a, uh, this drug rep had, you know, they, they would do these lunches and stuff. Yeah. Remember going to this lunch and it's fully catered. It's like, they don't, it's,
3: they're they not allowed to do that as much nowadays. Yeah. But I remember being in graduate school and if there was a, you'd hear, you'd hear like, Oh, there's a drug rep lunch. We didn't drug care what lunch. it was about because yeah. they would have, Really good food, hot food, lots of giveaways, pens, and soccer balls, and Bunch hats. Did and... an
1: estrogen
2: pill party huh? exactly, <laughs> yeah, for sure. exactly we're here, man.
1: Yeah, yeah so <laughs> those, those were those were fun events
3: back in the day. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I, I went to one of those, and I think like Roost Chris or something was, yeah, was on the menu. Like it was top, always top notch. Yeah, and it was the OxyContin rep and from Purdue, and he he came in and he was talking to my doctor, my client, and also my friend. And saying, "Hey, this is for pain management. This is like giving your your patients Tylenol. It's got the effects of like a Lortab, but it doesn't. It's non-addictive." Oh, this is the rep. I literally heard that. I they, heard. Well, it. they used
3: to say that, right? And 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 That's so a 1% when addictive. when people
1: see like dope sick and other and go, "Ah, oh, that couldn't have been like that." It was. I saw it myself. You know. Yeah. And so I remember walking out of that, and my doc, doctor friend saying that's what we should get you on. Like that would help your back a ton, you know? Cause I still had to move and I, I wasn't giving myself enough rest cause I, I had a business. I had family to sure, provide life. for. And if you ever break a back, man, it's, it does not like to heal because you're always moving it. It's not like yeah. when you cast an arm and you know, you can isolate it and let it grow and, and come uh, back. Once
3: a person has a serious back issue, it's kind of hard to not always feel like you have a back issue.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it, I just remember the first prescription that I got was, like, I am out of pain. I, and <laughs> I am not only out of pain, but I'm feeling really, really good. Like, it was immediate. Like, the, the this overwhelming euphoria, this overwhelming sense of of just bliss, like peace. But prior to that, had you had any, like... Anxiety or
2: anxiousness, anxiousness in your marriage. I mean, other than that, I mean, if, if people would have asked you before the back
1: break, "Hey Ryan, how's life going?" What would you have said? Oh, it's going ex- exceptionally well. No matter what. Yeah, like uh, I, you know, Brian's two thumbs up. Yeah, that was me. But but were you feeling <laughs> the two thumbs up in, in no. your life? No, you were. No, I mean, it, it, we we don't talk about like. The bad days, right? Like, if, if, somebody, if a clerk at Maverick says, How are you doing today? You're like, Great, good. man, you? Yeah, because I got to get out of here. Right? But you're always blown away when they were like, Not good. No, I like, just lost well, my I'm mother. feeling a little melancholy. You know, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they use that word, I'll, I'll be blown away. Yeah. But it, it's, it, it was always just like going to the next thing. I, I didn't really get to connect. You know, and it was this perfectionism of like, don't let people see you other than having a good day. I would
3: say just I'll give you my my profile of you, Ryan, is one of those very optimistic, forward thinking, uh, lots of energy, uh, outgoing personalities with that perfectionistic. So when you hit roadblocks, you kind of like to just blow past them. Right. Right. It wasn't sit and dwell on it. Talk about it. It It's like, okay, moving on, moving on, moving on. Which, of course, is part of the recipe to a lot of people's. Big time success in life, especially in business. But you're a young guy, you have little children, you have a new marriage, and a new business. So I can also say there's a ton of stress heaped in there. And I would imagine that because you didn't have the background to know how to give yourself relief from that, you just go, 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 accomplish, accomplish, accomplish. That was your coping mechanism. Then when this Oxycontin came along, Boom. And I love the fact that you said, you mentioned the pain relief a little bit. Mostly you used words like euphoria, mm-hmm. right? Because it was, that's the thing about that drug is the emotional change that a person has. the release. It's like you did, probably didn't even know that's possible. Oh, I right?
1: had no, I mean, you know, you'd hear about people getting high and stuff and I'd see my friends and they're feeling good, but feeling great, like exceptionally well, like it, this new level of life. And, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, things that I cared about went, went away. Like, I, I didn't care about what work email I had to do or what, you know, all these stresses I had to make sure that money was, was coming in and, and expenses were going out. Like, it, it was none of that mattered, right? And to me, it was like, I've, I've got a solution. You talk about um, alcohol being your one tool. And for me, I, I feel like I didn't have any tools until i found oxycontin then it was my one tool Mm. right and then and then that became so bad that i i wasn't you know you're chasing the high right i got to the point where wait i'm gonna stop you right there because you're listening to project
2: recovery you just heard ryan talk about the first time he took oxycontin pill we're gonna find out where that goes you're listening to project recovery Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Ryan Brown. He just described the first time he took an Oxycontin pill for a broken back. And the word he used was euphoric. And it wasn't pain relief. You said it a little bit, but you were really kind of focused on the euphoric feeling that it gave you. Yeah. And then you said you were about to go into how it got out of control. How does one pill lead to a mess?
1: Well, you you start – your I mean you're chasing the high right everybody knows what I'm talking about when we're we're chasing a high, like you know what, we felt we're, that we're, one time what 's crazy is though i
2: don 't think everybody knows okay. about chasing the high and it, and it 's kind of what 's really well there 's a lot of things wrong with the addiction world, but when you chase the high, that means you need to take more drugs to get the same effect, mm-hmm. and so you start to build up a tolerance in your body, so to get that same high where three beers used to do it for me, it had to become six, and then six yeah. would become twelve
3: that that experience you had that first time you took the pill. At least physiologically, you never had that same experience twice, never because that that particular drug is so powerful that your brain immediately maps it and and wants more of it, and so even if it's just a little by little, you need more and more to try to get there and so chasing is is actually the key word in that phrase you're always behind,
1: yeah, I was always behind and the the thing that your brain does, and I and I remember this, and this is complete honesty. I remember thinking my back hurts worse, like mm-hmm. and and it, and it, I don't know if it did or not. Like I, I really don't know. I maybe uh, maybe that the oxycontin was masking it, so I was doing more stuff and it was hurting worse. But I, I I do remember going back to the doctor and saying, "Hey man, this this isn't cutting it." Well, it, it was for a time, and then it and then. You know, you get up and up and up and up. And and finally, he came to me and he said, dude, my DEA is on the line for you. And I'm like, whoa, because that, that was something that just hit me like, what are you talking about? You know, like the so DEA? The,
3: yeah. The like, problem what? is you were, like all of us, trusting. Yeah, and and the doctor was even trusting, and this drug rep was trusting that the information he was given was correct, and he's out like going, towing the company line, saying what he was told to say, and all of it was lies. Yeah, right. All of it was lies, and it trickles down to the the person who's using the medication, and then you do come back confused, like, well, this was supposed to do this for me, but now I feel this way. And I'm asking for more or better, and you're telling me I'm doing something wrong.
1: Yeah, and that—that's where I was like, "What? What are we talking about? We're talking about the same drug that you know. We had the Purdue guy there, and da 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 da. Bruce Chris, don't yeah, you guys remember? Yeah, we were all there. yeah. We were all there. had a juicy steak. I and, know, you're talking about the DEA, mm-hmm. like sh- about ready to shut you down because of me. Oh man, that that like hit me hard. Because then it was just like, oh, I do have a problem. Right? Is that the first inclination that you had a problem? Yeah. Yeah, and it's Which funny is, because I, I actually had passed out a couple of times and would have seizures and, and not wake up and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, and you would just think seizure that seizure didn't wake yeah, up. Just yeah. just stuff like that you are like, well, you it's know that's, part that's of the not normal stuff, right? Well, at the time I thought it was just like something else. Yeah. You know, dehydrated or you yeah. know, you know, sleep sleepy. But well, the added
2: brain will trick you and manipulate sure.
1: you to think different things because what it doesn't want to admit is that you've got a problem. Got a problem because then you have got to take away that tool. Yep. Right? And I didn't want anybody taking away the tool. But when my, I started doing this whole, wow, I, this is a client that is a friend. I don't want anything to happen. Like if I hurt myself, that's one thing. But if I'm hurting other people, right. especially a license, like I don't want anything to do with that. So I, I, he gave me a new prescription. He said, hey, this is kind of like is, you're maxed out right here. So I, I went to Lake Powell with my family, with extended family, and, was, and that could not get out of my brain could not that and I, was took your it, last. I took a full bottle of Oxycontin and I threw it in Lake Powell and I remember thinking what have I done I had no idea what detox was I didn't know anything other than there it goes right and then I'm thinking well maybe it will float and then it just <laughs> you know <laughs> you're open <up. laughs> I love that the immediate regret of yeah, throwing right. that off the <laughs> boat Oh, I think it will float. Didn't ever come up, right? <laughs> <laughs> Down in Lake so Powell's now you're away. detoxing in Lake Powell with extended family. Well, that's yeah. cold. You forced cold turkey on yourself. Right? Forced it. Yeah. yeah, and I and and I didn't know what the because I always had an ample supply, so I didn't actually know what detox felt like. Mm-hmm. Or but withdrawals. For, yeah, like withdrawals just the worst skin crawling, the so worst. At, yeah. Up to this point, uh did uh, your beautiful wife Sarah have any idea that you were abusing these or using these or Well, she thought I mean, to be quite honest and fair, she she thought it was just the doctor giving it to me and I was just Which using was. it as prescribed. Yeah. Every once in a while I would cheat, but for the most part I was actually using it as prescribed. Um because Again, I knew that if I ran out of them, I was in trouble, right? So, for the most part, there was a few times that that I was like, "Ah, it's it's been a long day," you know, take an extra, extra one.
3: But to be fair, uh the prescription regimen back then was much different than it is now. Oh, so sure. they thought, because of the misinformation that was being spread about the drug, that you could prescribe a lot more. So so by today's standards, I would dare guess you were over-prescribed, even though at the time you were taking it as prescribed.
1: Correct. Let yeah. me ask, how many pills a day do you think you were using at your height? Uh, well, it, was, it it became like the max uh, milligrams, like whatever that was. I think it was 60 or 80. So um, I think it's 80. 80. And it was 80, and it was like six times a day, you know? Oh, my goodness. And yeah, so, see,
3: nowadays, we would look at that and go, oh, wow, that's abuse. Yeah, that's That's abuse. way too much. Yeah,
1: and and that's what would cause, you know... The seizures. The seizures. <laughs> and the passing out. And the not waking up, and, you know... So walk me through the detox, the withdrawals that you went
3: through on the beautiful shores
2: of Lake Powell. Oh,
1: uh, Lake Powell powerful. is not a certified...
3: Uh, Detox Center, right? I didn't so, even know what yeah. detox was.
1: <laughs> I didn't even know that there was a, a place that you could go to like help you down from death.
3: <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> because we've had people on the podcast who said they feared withdrawals. They welcomed death. I mean, that's that statement right there blows your mind. It was like, hey, look, bring on death because I welcome death. I want death. I do not want to withdraw.
1: Yeah, and, and, I, and I was like, okay, well, at least I'm in lake power. It, when I get hot, I'll jump in the lake and when I'm cold, I'll go in the, on the boat. You know, like I, I tr- would try to r- regulate my temperature and that's that awful uh, skin crawling, that just like sick feeling and, you know, j- your stomach is just in knots and death. Like it, it was – honestly, I thought death was a better answer. So at some
2: point, did you have to come clean with the family?
1: Yeah. And so I, I told Sarah what, I, what I'd done and she was like, okay, you know, we're kind of – Away from everything. And, and again, nobody knew really how to help me other than just like keep me as comfortable as possible with Gatorade and otter water, otter pops, and just try to, you know, keep me hydrated basically yeah. um, so that my body could just expel it. So after that happened, after that week, and that week was hell, I didn't want anything to do with it. Like I, I would have surgeries and toothaches and all that kind of stuff. And they'd be like, oh, here's some tab. No, thank you. Like I don't want any of that. Because I had had such an amazingly bad experience, with, 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 yeah, with the 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 personal detox, yeah, yeah, that it was to this day it's freshly like right in my memory. Like we call that
3: one trial learning, yeah. When something is so So miserable that it makes a lasting impression.
1: But I don't think that's why you're here on the podcast because it sounds like you went back out again. Well, so what happened was I, I got myself clean, right? And then <laughs> I'm like, I'm just never touching that stuff. And then I went on a period of about five years where I was like completely sober and I'm like, Whoa, that was a near miss, right? And then I got um, I, I got enough time where I got some of that ego back and, some, and and some of the stressors that came into my life. And I remember going to the liquor store buy um, sake for a, a Japanese um, recipe and I was like I wonder what that tastes like like years later like this is like at 36 years old or 37 years old or whatever going to the liquor store for so you normally a didn't
3: you weren't drinking at Mm-mm. the time you just happened to be making a recipe that called for sake yeah and, so and you
1: cook it out right in the
3: state of Utah you have to go to the liquor store for that and so you went there and, and all of a sudden had the voice I wonder what that tastes like Yeah,
1: I wonder what that tastes like so I drank it the whole bottle <laughs>
0: all or nothing, like looking at me like,
1: are you sure? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Look, I'm an alcoholic, so I know little things about alcohol. Like sake is not an introduction alcohol. You know I know. I mean? That's I, not something I, that people start with. And this is how you know how
1: honest this is, is because I had no idea. Yeah. Right. right. I, I had no idea. So I, the sake was just like the feeling came rushing back and it felt a lot like that euphoria that I remembered from the Oxycontin. Yeah, and it and it was like, oh, hello, old friend. Yeah, you know? and I and then I then it was just like a it was it it was, it was it was so fast to the races with that it was like I had no idea how to calibrate it I had no idea what one beer versus one pint versus you know uh, a liter of vodka uh, or, no idea I'm but just you were drinking off to the races I'm just drinking to to get out of me right yeah and then it became again kind of chasing the high and all and waking up in the morning and going this is how you start a day right like with the liter of vodka a couple shots get going oh shots nothing Leaders.
3: yeah so you you started heavy drinking right away mm-hmm. at a- the m- age of 37 am yeah. drinking
1: yeah yeah i mean it was like well i'm I, i'm still a functional alcoholic i haven't lost any jobs i haven't lost any clients i haven't you know and and really i had this network of people around me that was i wouldn't call them enablers that's that's kind of a harsh word for it but they in essence they're enabling it because they're they're covering for me they're they're mm-hmm. that catch net that's like okay well if ryan really messes up then we can cover for him and it wasn't necessarily cover as much as just do ryan's job right um and so i had a uh, including my wife that was that was basically raising kids and running the business by herself. So how long do you think you spent uh, drinking and chasing the alcoholic high? Um, I, I, it was almost exactly six or seven years. Almost exactly. Almost exactly. (laughs) Six or seven. Yeah. I don't know. It was, it was, it was about 36 to 42. And so, um, but it was, it, it was like all the things that came with being an alcoholic. And and again, I I would put on the face honesty. Like there was no honesty. There, everybody thought I was doing fine. Everybody, um, with the exception of people who really were connected with me, like my wife or like a my mom and 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 stuff. That the real connections knew, right? And I wasn't fooling them. I tried to. I tried to many times, like.
3: But well, we talk about it. addiction is a family disease, or you know anybody who's close to us gets wrapped up in the addiction process and i know that enabler is is a harsh word maybe for the people you're thinking yeah. of because you love and care about them but i think it's it's okay to apply that to those situations to those people because it's not it's not a um, accusation or a put down all of us through our good intentions of trying to help someone can end up enabling their addictive process. Right. And so it sounds like you had people that loved and cared about you, whether it was at work or at home who were trying to help. Right. And they're, you know, they're picking up after Ryan, so to speak, uh, everywhere you go. And, uh, so in a way they were enabling and and they were seeing the, 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 real Ryan, whereas you were you had you were playing Two Face, right? Like yeah. the Batman villain. You you know one one face for the world and then one face for home.
2: Yeah, I love that enabling because um, nobody enables out of hate.
3: No, it's always out of
2: love. That's a good point, Casey. It, it's out of love. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. You no, know like, man, I hate that person. I'm going to make sure they
3: have all the drugs and alcohol they need. I know my personality. I'd be an amazing enabler. Yeah. I mean, because I just love to help people. Yeah. And, you know, and so I think it's good for the listeners to realize this is a family mm-hmm. disease. And if you're not the person using the substance, you're probably in that other camp. Mm-hmm. You're probably the, And it's great to realize that. Just like it's important for, for the user to realize, I have a problem. It's important for the family and friends to go, I have a problem, too. Mm-hmm. I'm enabling this.
1: So how does the run of alcohol come to an end? Uh, very abruptly. Um, what happened was I, I, I started to realize, you know, nobody Google if, if you're a normie or somebody that can drink alcohol and put it down, it, nobody Googles, am I an alcoholic? You know, right. like nobody. <laughs> I can tell you right now, <laughs> I have
2: Googled that, and I was as young as 30 when I Googled it. Wow.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was like, well, again, thinking that that was just the people on on Four South, Pioneer Park. That's not me. Like, I I'm not an alcoholic. Um, and people in my life, like my mom and my wife, were were like, yeah, you're an alcoholic. You need help. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Like, I'm I haven't lost anything. I'm doing fine. Like, you're fine. Be quiet. Like, it, it you're you're provided for. Let me do my thing. I'm an adult. Right, and I, re- I got really like, like really shovy pushy about people trying to encroach on my tool. Yeah, don't right? tell me
2: what to do or how to live my yeah. life. I've said those words exactly.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah. Do I tell you how to
3: live your life, <laughs> if you
2: don't tell me how to live mine? Yeah. I mean, I mean, as dumb as it is, that's what you do as an addict. Yeah. It's like, hey, what do you care? I, this is my body. Extreme
1: it's, defensiveness.
2: Oh yeah, 100%. extreme
1: defensiveness, and then and to the point where like, where, if friends are reaching out and like, hey man, how can I help? Block you know like i got i don't want to deal with that I have time for you yeah yep. and then, and that's sad it's sad um so i what happened was it it, it my good friend john john red mm-hmm. um had him on the podcast yeah he's been on the podcast he's he's an amazing individual um i had seen him in his addiction i had no idea what addiction was but i knew he had it and i and i was i'd help him in the car at times and he was he, you know, he was somebody that I was like, oh, he's got an, a problem. Well, one time he just, he's in my neighborhood. He lives a few houses away and he, he, he shows up and he's like, like talking to Casey, like talking to you, Dr. Matt, like it, like, I'm like, who is this guy? Like, this is not the same John Red I know. And he, and it was like, his eyes are white and he's laughing. And I'm like, what the, what is going on? I don't even know who this dude is, you know? And, and he, he, I remember thinking, I need to talk to him, you know?
3: And so I, you're used to him in his addiction. That's how you knew him. Yeah. And then he shows up one day and it's like this new, improved, bright eyed person that his you didn't recognize. Over. Yeah.
1: And I think he's full of it. You know, I think he's, I think he's full in. Like, everybody in the in Like, the world. what drug is he on? Yeah. He's <laughs> not fooling you. Yeah. He's not going to fool me. And I, I, I really thought he was full of it. And so, I, under false pretense, I take him to lunch for business purposes. And I I tell him, hey, man, I think I'm an alcoholic. And, and his reaction stunned me because I was so used to the shame and the moral failure and the, like, you can't tell anybody about this. And he just, like, got this quirky little smile like john you know exactly yeah. <laughs> what i'm talking about and he got this and He goes, okay now what <laughs> and like, wait it what didn't phase him at all bro i just told you that like i'm the most abject moral failure ever and you're just like cool he's like well i mean i want to get you help how can i help and i i was amazed at the non-judgment i was ah. amazed at the no shame i was am- like blown away Because I didn't have anybody in my life that that wasn't just an abject failure. And so for him to be like, cool, let me walk you through it. I'm like, okay, we can do this. Right. But then it got worse because then I was like, it seems too easy. Right. So, and then I push back or you put it off for a little bit put because you're off. not really ready to make the commitment. Exactly. Yet. That
3: willingness wasn't there. You can there. go
2: back and you can talk to your wife. You can talk to your family and go, Hey, I'm talking to somebody. We, we've
3: got some, so we call that contemplation, right? Yeah. You're in that stage of contemplation, not ready to take any action. And when you contemplate, sometimes you, you ebb and flow like, Oh, this seems like a really good idea.
1: Yes. But no. no, no, it's not a good idea. Well, you know what it became for me? It became a way to get mom Wife, kids, off, your back. off my back. Mm-hmm. Talk to John; he knows what it's like. You know, talk to John. Um, and you know, I'd show up to AA meetings and not be not be there. Just oh, yeah. just just putting my butt in the in the couch and and just like going through the motions. Yeah, I'm not I'm not them. Like I heard that guy's story. I'm not that bad, right? Yeah. So I'm obviously not an alcoholic. And then that <sighs> then that's when I got separated from my wife and kids. And, and decided that like, okay, if they're going to take my one tool away, I'm I'm going to go be my man. Like I'd be the man that I want to be. And I had, I got to tell you, Dr. Matt, like I had this one therapist that was um, su- a super enabler who mm. was telling me that, hey, man, you you just need to do whatever makes you happy. Oh, that therapist. Yeah, right? I know that therapist. And, uh <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, I, that's what I thought. You get me? Yeah. That's what I thought too. <laughs>
3: do what feels right. Do yes. yes.
1: Do yeah. Simple. It wasn't do the next right thing. It was do whatever feels good for, for you. The yeah, that's what I thought too. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we're on the same page. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I'll Indulge continue to see my every you. want all the time. That's that's how I'm gonna fix that's this. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So I I and I came back and I told John. I said, well, John me and my therapist have a plan.
3: <laughs> have you heard about it. people's I plans before? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah that's
1: yeah. great. We got we, a plan. We, we joke about it in AA, like, Hey, yeah. tell us about your plans. <laughs> yeah. You know? So I've got this plan, John, and he's, and he looked at me and with the most sincere look, he's like, I got to tell you, man, I'm not on board. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. Cause you're not a, you're not a licensed therapist and you're not in the plan. You're not in the plan. Um, and, And then so I went and got an Airbnb and I lived by myself for some time, you know, and was acting like I was 21 years old. Like I I, seriously, it was like I was in college again, but a different person. Right. This time you were not the designated
3: driver. We call that emotional regression. So when when we hit, especially when we're kind of midlife late 30s to 50s in that sometimes we hit this period where we feel like I don't really know who I am and what makes me happy. Mm -hmm. Maybe I've built a lot of great things, but I I haven't built myself up. And so that can actually be an exciting turning point for a lot of people where they, they dig deep and they make changes that make their life what they want it to be and what it should be. And then sometimes we have an emotional regression Where we're like, you know what would make me happy if I could be 21 again Mm -hmm. and I could act like a 21 year old idiot and that I would have no responsibility and I can buy a Corvette and, you know, pierce my ears or whatever (laughs) you do. And and it's, and you, so you do that and, and we have a fancy term for that. It's called midlife crisis. Midlife crisis.
1: So, yeah. So I'm, I'm the stereotypical midlife crisis. I'm going back and, and doing whatever I want, drinking when I want, going and hanging out at bars whenever I want. Nobody to, to tell me to keep me accountable, right? Nobody to keep me honest, and and it and I thought that that's what makes me happy, right? So I'm doing this this whole thing, this bachelor thing. Uh, all the the while, my kids are upset, like and and I could see it on their faces when I'd come back. Like even though I was drunk, ninety five, ninety eight percent of the time, I was I could still see their faces, mm-hmm. and I could still see the hurt, and I could. I could not let that go. I could, as as much as I wanted to, just drink that away. That was undrinkable, um, because I I knew at that point that that's that's actually what makes me happy is being with them, and this alcohol is causing me to not be with them. Um, so it was, uh, it went on uh, somewhat of a, a last down to Phoenix, feeling crappy the whole time about this, even the decision to leave there. Um, and, uh, came home and, uh, I saw my kids came straight to the house, saw my kids and this resolve on, uh, my wife's face was like, you're not welcome here. Like, I don't need you. Um, and i ne- I'd never seen that before. I, I, you know, she'd been so long of just like, it will work it out. We'll, we'll figure it out. And now it was like, no, we're done. We're done. And, uh, I, I'd never been hit with that before. And so I immediately texted John and I said, man, I think, I think I need rehab. And John found me a place like the next day. Um, and he asked me before I left to, to pray about it. And, uh, I have to tell you this part of the story because it's important because I'd had such a bad relationship with God ever since that, like towards the Oxycontin addiction that I, I'd lost connection like, with my higher power. Like God was it it seemed stupid to me. Like I, I got to the point where I'm smarter than, than God. Right. Um, and plus I got like the, you know, I know this is a family broadcast is the F it alls. You know, oh, like yeah. a, no, the, yeah. I just, I, I, I just felt like I had gone so far down so much shame. So, so much like sin in my life that I can't ever get back. Like, so might as well enjoy the ride. Right. Like grateful dead. It's a hopelessness. Yeah, and I, and it was this hopelessness that I I remember feeling so intensely. And he goes, "Why don't you pray about whether or not you need to go to rehab?" And I I was resentful towards John for that. I was like, "You don't know me. Like I've done so much in in my addiction that you you think I can talk to God? Like you think that he cares about me?" And I remember waking up the next day. I did what he said, and I had this real like this most intense feeling of rehabs where I need to be and everything with the company, with the kids, with everything was going to be okay. Um, because I was in my head about losing clients, you know, Casey, I, I, I had built up this, this, um, company and I was just like, I had to call each and every one of them and tell them I'm going to be gone for at least 30 days. Mm. Just finish me now, you know, but I did it because John said, if you do it, you'll be surprised. And you know, I didn't lose one client over that. Everyone that I was honest with and said, hey, I've got a problem and I need some help. They said, go take care of you and your family and we'll be here in 30 days (laughs) or whatever time you need. We're not going anywhere.
3: That's impressive. That's huge.
1: Never in my wildest dreams did I think anybody would say that. And let alone, like, this whole book of business of clients, you know.
3: So now it's not just your friend John, but all these clients are responding in a supportive, non-judgmental way.
1: Yeah, and, and I'd been this perfectionist all my life. And now I'm, like, telling them that, no, this guy that you thought you knew is actually, like, an alcoholic. I don't think you heard me. Like, no. Because they can deal with honesty. People can handle honesty. You know, and when we give people a chance to, um, to connect, a chance to empathize, and and and, I I really feel like there's like the spiritual connection that is like. Go get them, you know. Like, yeah, we're here for you. So now your friends,
2: family, and clients are enabling you with love. Yeah. To get the help that you need.
1: Yeah. And you go in and you do thirty days. Yeah. You come back out. I, I didn't want it to be that long. I wanted, I wanted to be the first. You know, I'm going to do rehab. I'm do thirty days and <laughs> <in> ten days. <laughs> like yeah, I wanted to get it done. You know, yeah. But it was set a record. Yeah. It, but um, you know, with John being associated with that particular rehab, he's like, no, I don't, I don't want you leaving here until you do a fourth and fifth step. And for those of you that don't know, that's kind of getting rid of the garbage, right? Yeah and all those things that that i'm like well i've gone down the path so far that i'm i'm no good anymore i'm not worthy i'm not uh, nobody wants me I, god took care of that you know and and it's the most amazing feeling when i got done with my fifth step i was like i can breathe again you know i i have this new life and felt like i, I was i was completely born again and felt like i've got something to give back now so, how long have you been sober? I've been sober for a year and almost four months. Congratulations! Thank you. Like we've had a lot of people on the
2: podcast, service is a, an important part <laughs> to the recovery. You're embarking on a new adventure. Yeah. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I, I think that the that um, it's important to know that I I still go to my local AA meetings. You know, I still I still work with sponsees. but we had this opportunity, John and I to really make a difference. The way that this came about, I wish I had another hour to tell you about this, but the way that this whole place came about in Mountain Green, Morgan, Utah, um, is nothing less than a miracle in so many ways. I mean, we've gone and journaled it down. John's got it on his phone right now, but essentially all these things lined up and we walked into this beautiful home and said, people can heal here. And it's just this beautiful place up in Mountain Green. And, um, I think that you know you look at how John Red does recovery. Yeah, and I and I, I'm not John Red, but I mimic that, you know, and I mimic people like Brian Heaton and and the people in my lives that are doing recovery the right way, Casey Scott. I look at them and go, hey, I like that that about them, and I I want other people to have that. So when I talk to sponsors and when I talk to people that are around addiction. That's what I want to be. I want to be that resource for him to help him out whatever way I can. Now so. the recovery
2: center is not open yet. And when it does open up, we'll have you and John back on the podcast. I appreciate that. I've well, got, I've I'm got, proud. Yeah. I,
3: I'm from Morgan. Yeah. I, I'm proud to know that, that, that you guys have chosen that spot. Mountain green is honestly one of the most beautiful places on the earth.
2: Well, that's what that was interesting because yeah. you said to him, why'd you choose that Yeah, and before goes, the show? He goes, what a beautiful place to heal! Yeah, and I remember that. I mean, that just hit me in the heart. I was like, yeah. "That is it, it,
3: it. well." I know exactly where it is, and I can I can picture in my mind exact the exact view, and it is it is a peaceful, beautiful valley, and, and the spot you guys have chosen is is going to be a wonderful place for healing. So I'm I'm excited that you
1: guys are there. Yeah, we really feel like God picked it for us. We were just we were just you know John uses the thing he says. These two idiots that are just coloring by numbers. God tells us which number is next, and we go do that. You know, it's a pretty good formula. Yeah. yeah, And and there is something to be said about being in in the the flow of wh- whatever God has in, in intended for our lives, and and that's what we just try to do now. So I've got to ask, how's the family? They're good. They're really good. Um, my, it's funny because like my kids, um, who. Have had a hard time with dad being on podcasts and and stuff like that. Um, they're realizing that like when they give their friends and and family and Facebook associates a chance to hear about what's going on, people are amazing. Like I the first podcast I did, I was so in my head about
2: oh I'm going to share my
1: story. I'm going to share world. my story and somebody's going to figure it out right and be yeah. like oh you know that that's not acceptable. Everybody comes back and says, "Me too," or, um, "I've got a friend," or, "Wow, that's a powerful story," you know. And so it's it's like God gives us this like boost of energy to like keep doing that, you know, keep doing that. And I think with with my family now, they're they're far enough separated from it that they that they can laugh about the the idiot the dad used to be because I I man. Just I like, can still talk about the time I went to church camp. Because that's what they <laughs>
2: called rehab. Church camp. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Because it sounded a lot cooler than saying, My dad went to rehab. Yeah, church like, camp. My dad went to church camp.
1: Yeah, that's, and, and that's, you know, so long ago, uh, at least a year and three months ago, that they are, they're like laughing about it now. We can have the, those conversations that don't hurt so bad. And mm-hmm. we, we're able to make new memories, right? Yeah, that's great. Making new memories is so important. Um, cause a lot of times I don't like the word trigger, but uh, when you go into a place that you've had a bad experience before and you, yeah. Las Vegas, um, you know, Lake Powell, all these other places that we've had bad experiences at, we can go in there and make new memories. All of a sudden that's a safe place for us, you know, can
3: and dad's still it. sober. Yeah. I love it. Uh, I love that too. And I love the fact, uh, that you've been able to, uh, break down, sort of the stigma of addiction in an intergenerational way meaning you've taught your kids something that is so valuable for them to learn because when we were growing up and you sh- shared this in your story you didn't really know anything about addiction or substance abuse so when people were struggling with it you you had your you know stigma based you know thoughts about it which which didn't really help serve you when you were faced with your own addiction and so now your kids, Casey's kids, so many people are growing up now with an education about it uh, that that's very, very helpful. I, I think that, that generationally things are changing in an exciting
1: way. I do, too. I've, I've noticed it over the the past few years where, um, you know, when you look at high school to today, it's completely different. Yeah, And, I, and, and it's, it's got a lot of room to go, right? Oh, sure. It does. Morgan County's got a lot of room to go. We're, we're pretty close to perfect in Morgan, but we
3: have had a few Morganites on the show, haven't
2: we? But, yeah.
1: but I will say it's it's going in the right direction. I yeah. think
3: so, too.
2: Well, I thank you very much for stopping by and sharing your story. Uh, it really made me happy. I mean, I, we laughed. We had a good time. Ryan's
3: yeah. got a nice, positive energy. And yeah. what I love about guys like Ryan and John and people like that that are out there giving back in the community I, I almost want to go to the rehab, take 30 days. I don't, I'm i not an alcoholic, but it would be great to just I tell feel, that. you know, soak up their energy and do some positive, good stuff for yourself. I tell people all the time,
2: if you can get 30 to 45 days in a rehab without an addiction, take it. Do it. Uh, because it's amazing.
3: Yeah, they, I agree. They, they I, take
2: you to the workout. They give you food. But it's so You positive. see a therapist. Yeah. And,
3: and yeah. I think that might be my vacation. Some of the
2: meetings get a little intense, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's good though, too. That's yeah, good, too. You know what I mean? And, and you keep it real. The thing I love about you most, is your honesty? Um, you know, I really do. And honesty for me is a superpower, uh, and I love the fact that you own it. And I think you're doing wonderful things. And when that uh, rehab center gets up and running, you and John both have an open invitation to come back and Thank talk you, about all the wonderful things that you're going to do out of there.
1: We we really feel like we're on God's errand, and I and I mean that sincerely.
3: And when you guys have an opening ceremony, let us know because sure. that's my hometown. I'd love to come support you guys. For sure. Your
2: you're first invite. Yeah. All right. Thank you for stopping by and listening to the podcast today. It is Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what?
3: It's a KSL podcast.
0: KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night.
1: Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do.
0: When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was